0: Welcome to Good God Conversations that Matter About Faith and Public Life. I'm your host, George Mason, and I'm delighted to welcome to the program today Dr. Kristen Dumais. Uh, she is a professor of history at Calvin College, and she is the author of the sensational book, actually, that has really captured the attention of many Christians in America Jesus and John Wayne. How white evangelicals corrupted a faith and fractured a nation. Welcome to Good God, Kristen.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Well, I I'm looking at myself uh, right now on this camera and realize that inadvertently I put on my Mister Rogers uh, sweater. I see
1: that nice choice. So
0: I, I actually didn't think about that, but I I think there must be something uh, subliminal about that, that, um, I'm atoning for something, right? So, <laughs> uh, but, uh, <clears throat> thank you so much for joining us. I, I think, uh, I'm sure that, uh, this is, as, as I mentioned to you before, probably your 147th podcast, you've been everywhere in the last months, uh, since the 2020 publication of this book, uh, and I'm sure it's caught you somewhat off guard. You're, you're a historian. You write books. You study things. And, and, and this has been uh, sensational, I'm sure. And I mean that both in, in, in a qualitative way and also in a public fanfare sort of way, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Definitely not expected, right? As, as an academic, we're used to spending years working on projects. And then we're thrilled if a few hundred people read them and appreciate them.
0: Right. Well, more than a few hundred people have read this book and many of us have appreciated tremendously. I think we should just sort of establish the context of it a little bit. So, it was written in the age of Donald Trump, of course, uh, obviously started earlier than that. Uh, But what was it that prompted your interest in the subject matter to begin with?
1: Yeah, if you have a paperback edition, I tell a little bit of this story in the new preface, but I, my interest in questions of evangelical masculinity go way back to the early Mm -hmm. 2000s. And really what sparked it uh, was a combination of my academic training, right? I'm a historian of gender and religion, and, and then also what I was observing around me as a new professor at Calvin University. Actually, it was Calvin College then. We've just upgraded recently. So, oh, okay. uh, <laughs> But um, it was my own students who introduced me to the literature on Christian manhood that was incredibly popular back in the early 2000s, uh, including the book, Uh, by John Eldridge, Wild at Heart. And uh, so they told me I had to read it. I read it and, and it was really fascinating to me First, that it didn't really draw on the scriptures very much for building a, a kind of model of Christian masculinity. Uh, mm-hmm. Instead, you know, drew from Hollywood heroes and kind of mythical warriors, and it was setting up an image of, of uh, Christian manhood that was very militant, militaristic, that to my mind, really went against some of the core teachings of the gospels and of, of Jesus Christ. And so... Um, that was a long time ago <laughs> and more than 15 years ago. And for a variety of reasons, I set the project aside. One of which was I was trying to tease out how mainstream all of this was and how fringe because the what I was reading and observing in the evangelical world back then seemed really fairly extremist. And I just wasn't sure how, how to parse that out. So then it was in the fall of 2016 when I noticed how similar the words were that evangelicals were using to defend their support for then candidate Donald Trump were to the words that I had read all those years ago in these books on Christian manhood that, you know, um, Donald Trump was our ultimate fighting champion and he was ruthless, but he would protect Christianity.
0: Right. So uh, you grew up in the reform tradition and teach at a reform uh, college and so, in a sense, uh, because of your uh, evangelical roots, uh, I suppose you shouldn't have been terribly surprised by all of these developments. Because I, I grew up in evangelicalism as well, um, in New York, in New York, and the evangelical Free Church tradition, mm-hmm. uh, and so I, I very much was. A part of that world. I have my red binder from um, Bill Gothard and all all of those sorts of things. Uh, I I went to college and played football and eventually worked for the Fellowship of Christian Athletes. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, you know, I have my bona fides for this this world, right? Uh, And and ironically, you know, I went to seminary in 1979, the year that the moral majority started and the conservative resurgence took over the Southern Baptist Convention. And uh, yet, um, I didn't follow that path. I came away from it. Uh, But I, I, I know that in a sense, the goal of a historian is not necessarily to change people's minds or to Uh, to, you know, write a constructive theology, Uh, but you have described through your historical work something that presents a picture to some of us about what we have experienced. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, I, I know you've been criticized a lot of times on grounds other than the work of a historian, uh, <laughs> and it's, it seems terribly unfair to read you on Twitter and realize, oh my goodness, this is not what she does, you know. Um, but at the same time, it shouldn't surprise you, I suppose, that everybody that reads this book and has a sense of awareness of what you've done is saying yes and. And, and what should my response be to this yeah. now?
1: Yeah, no, that's a, a really good point. So I'm a historian. This is a work of history. I published with a, a secular trade press, and mm-hmm. you know, my audience for this book really was uh, you know just ordinary Americans. Anybody who cares about uh, the religious and political landscape, um, frankly, who cares about American democracy? I thought this was an important story to tell. And as an academic, right, we're kind of uh, rooted in our own academic cultures. And so we have the American Historical Association, American Society of Church History, and so on, right? And so those are our peers. We do peer review. Mm-hmm. And I was really writing this book first and foremost to make sure I got things right. You know, and I was always writing it with my historian peers in mind. And so I think that's one of the things that's been a little unexpected. It shouldn't have been unexpected, it, certainly if the book did what, what you know, I, I maybe hoped it could do, that so much of the response in recent months has been um, not at all about the historical scholarship. And in fact, there's been very little engagement with the historical scholarship in academic mm-hmm. spaces. I can say the book is holding up extremely well among historians, among philosophers of religion, religious studies folks, like, so the scholarship is is very solid. But in evangelical spaces, uh, you know, the, the attacks have been quite personal, or they've, you know, questioning my own faith, which, which to me, I, it's always a little bit difficult to know how to respond to that. Because on the one hand, I am a, a, a confessional Christian, Nicene Creed, or I teach at Calvin university. I went to Christian grade school and in college. And I mean, I, I, I can hold my own, right. <laughs> my kids go to Christian schools. Um, um, so so I can I can play that game, I, I guess, in as much as it's a game, but the scholar in me is is reluctant to do so as well, because it's a as a work of scholarship, it really shouldn't matter what my faith commitments are to judge whether or not I got this story right. It's an interesting thing to talk about, and I'm all for saying, you know, where where are you coming from religiously? How are you, how did that maybe shape the questions that you're asking, the approach that you took? Um um, but in terms of, you know, deciding whether this is a book that should be given real consideration, I don't think that my um, my personal religious commitments necessarily should, um, uh, should come into play for that. And so that's been a little frustrating because I think of all of the books that I've read by um, so many scholars who do not share my personal faith commitments. In fact, Usually when I'm reading a history book, I have no clue about the religious right, right. beliefs. Um, so that's sure. it's, it's been a bit of a strange space to be in. I, w- I will I will say that.
0: Right. So let's talk about your methodology a little bit, because as I as I was reading it, uh, of course, there's a certain historical chronology that you're following, yes. uh, that uh, you're, you're tracking this in a sense. Uh, and uh, and, and, and for a while, as I was reading it, I was thinking, this is sort of a great man uh, sort of history, you know, a rendering of history. Mm-hmm. And they were almost all men, but there's Phyllis Schlafly and there are people like that as well. Right. So maybe we need to say great persons, uh, even if it's mostly male. Um, but then the, the more I read, the more I thought, yeah, it, it, it it's going to be that way, partly because that's also part of the evangelical culture to have these significant figures but there, there's also of course as historians you wrestle with is it the great men that make culture or is it the culture that makes the great men right so uh, there I, I, I'm not sure how after reading your book which influences which the most <laughs> do you have a sense about that
1: oh this this is so much fun to get to talk about methodology I rarely have the opportunity so uh, I, I'm, I'm fairly traditionally trained as a historian. Um, I, my advisor was George Marsden, a prominent historian of evangelicalism, Christian scholar, and he's an intellectual historian. Um, and, and so and very much he's gonna look at the theology, the kind of national leaders, and and, and there's plenty of that in Jesus and John Wayne. Um, but I've also been trained in cultural history and in, in uh, gender studies. And so I'm always interested in how ideas of masculinity and femininity are changing over time, how they're connected, not just to religion, but to economic shifts and to uh, to race and to power. And so so that's obvious here. Um, But then as a as a cultural historian, I'm also really intrigued by popular culture and Mm -hmm. and so. uh, both, both in training, you know, I love to read books on um, on popular culture and, and to see how you know when you really think about it, what ends up you know, shaping evangelical uh, kind of faith formation. Evangelicals have have crafted this elaborate subculture over the last Mm -hmm. more than half a century now. Right? You know, going back to Billy Graham and radio and television and magazines and Christian publishing and Dobson's focus on the family and televangelism, like, there is so much. Uh, Campus and,
0: ministries,
1: yeah. Oh, yes, yes. The parachurch organizations, right? That is evangelicalism, really. Far more than what theologians may be discussing in this or that seminary, which is not entirely irrelevant, right? Because it, it does filter down. But there's so much more to evangelicalism than what's going on in the seminaries. Um, and to understand what evangelicalism is to ordinary folks, you have to look at this popular culture and then see how how markets Shape what is distributed and how gatekeepers are are you know really uh, controlling which ideas are acceptable and which ideas are not. Who gets platformed and who gets shunned. And, um, and so this is a popular culture of evangelicalism that takes into account the big names like Falwell and uh you know Dobson and so on but then it really looks at the cultural products as well that are are being distributed throughout this subculture and I think that's why the book connects so viscerally with so many readers because they may or may not have been aware of the debates going on within the you know the conservative resurgence or takeover in the SBC but you know they grew Grew up uh, watching Veggie Tales or listening to Adventures in Odyssey, or you know, uh, their mom listened to Focus on the Family uh, every single day, and and so that is their evangelicalism. And so I simply take that seriously and um, and really center that evangelicalism in my narrative.
0: I was talking with an older woman one time uh, who was struggling with. Uh, the question of the inclusion of LGBTQ folk in the church. And uh, she, uh, you know, finally came out and and said to me something along the lines of, you're just being so influenced by the culture. Yes. And I said, um, so knowing you quite well, uh, it it seems to me that you have imbibed deeply of the evangelical culture. Uh, and you have a culture too. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's not that there's the gospel and the church that is a true rendering of how everything is supposed to be. And then there's this alien culture out there that is threatening. Uh, I think what you've done is, is sort of in this book, uh, demonstrate uh, that this is not all about theology or biblical interpretation. This is about an enormous a formation of a culture within a larger culture.
1: Exactly, know. exactly. So evangelicals have created their own culture, um, mm-hmm. but they have they have been deeply shaped. By broader cultural influences as have, as you suggest, progressives, right? But the difference right. is that progressives openly acknowledge that. In fact, progressives, progressive Christians have really emphasized the goodness in the secular, have embraced the secular in, in, in many cases, uh, uh, perhaps to a fault in, in unexpected ways in that it can, it can be difficult to make a case for needing, for example, um, uh, to produce distinctively, you know, progressive Christian cultural products because they aren't afraid of, you know, what's on Netflix or, you know, they, they don't need their own version of everything. And so the market simply isn't there. So, so again, the way the market works then is there's a huge demand for conservative Christian products, um, and that demand is sustained by leaders warning their um, uh, you know fellow evangelicals away from other cultural products. And it's always important to keep in mind that there's a lot of money changing hands in all of this, as well as you know different you know gatekeeping mechanisms. But that evangelical world is deeply influenced by uh, secular culture, even as they deny it. Culture is always something that is out there, happens to others, and is bad. And so there is a real blindness to the deep ways in which their own values have been shaped by secular ideals. That's really the John Wayne part of the title of this book, right? John Wayne, not an evangelical but right. a great example of how this iconic figure uh, mm-hmm. ends up, you know, holding this, this uh, space in an evangelical world when in all the valleys that go along with it, that some of which, many of which actually run counter to uh, scriptural teachings.
0: Well, I, I thought there was an interesting moment in the book, too, where uh, Oliver North uh, heard someone uh, referring to um, George W. Bush as you know gallivanting uh, uh, across uh, the globe and uh, acting like John Wayne. Uh, and North thought that he must have misspoken because he meant John Wayne. Uh, <laughs> uh, right, he meant he meant Ronald Reagan, right, not right, right. John yes, Wayne. Yes.
1: Yes. Honest and, mistake. So it right? was this
0: sort of merger of Ronald Reagan <laughs> yes. and John Wayne. In, right. in, what, in is this myth,
1: what is real? And and yes. Yeah. yeah right. I, I got a little obsessed with Ollie North in this book. I kept waiting yeah, for my yeah. editor to say too much, Kristen, too much. And each right. time it came back, I was like, i got to keep it. So. Okay,
0: but but let's go to this question of culture a little more, because mm-hmm. I think it raises an important distinction between um, progressives and evangelicals, and that is that we use the language of culture, but really what we're talking about is the other, right? That, that there is a sense in which baked into the, the way of looking at faith and the world, there has to be uh, and other. There has to be an enemy. There has to be someone over against us so that we know ourselves. Um, I, I was um, talking the other day with um, Mitri Raheb from Bethlehem, who's a Lutheran pastor there, and he's a Palestinian Christian. And he was making the point that, you know, it it was right at the time of the fall of the Berlin Wall that Lusanne too met uh, and uh, right in that meeting, they had to find another enemy for the church to persecute us because communism was no longer going to be the persecutor of the church, and it became Islam. Right in that meeting, they identified the 1040 corridor where uh, 85% of Muslims in the world live, and, you know, it. And, and so, you know, there's a sense in which, as you say in the book, nine eleven makes Islam to be our enemy, but he was even going back to the, the, the fall of the wall. But I, I, I don't know that anybody has a real explanation for this. I wonder if you do after reading the book. What is it about the nature of evangelical faith that it seems to need an enemy in order to know itself?
1: Yeah. Oh, that getting, getting underneath to the, the deeper why questions is tricky. I'll say a number of times in writing the book there, I, I felt like I was up against the limits of historical scholarship and really needed to ah. hand off the baton to psychologists to say, you know, that mm-hmm. what how, what's really going on here. Yes. So I can describe mm-hmm. what I've seen. And I think that it's particularly useful uh, to evangelical leaders uh, mm-hmm. and uh, this, this kind of having an enemy, um, well, first, maybe I can go back a little bit more theological. Um, and if you get into some of the teachings and from my own reform tradition uh, in particular that have been kind of warped in into the teachings of somebody like Rush Dooney, um, oh. this I- idea of, you know, truth is from God. And so those who are Christians have access to God's truth. And those who are not or not the right kind of Christians don't have mm-hmm. access to God's truth, right? This kind of presuppositionalism. And, and so so the other is literally, you know, they're outside of God's truth. So why would you want to empower them? Uh, you yes. want to separate yourself. And, you know, in in terms of Christian America, why would you want to, you know, would you really want those people voting, honestly? Right, um, right. So, so there there are there is this kind of Christian worldview that is uh, in the background here and then there's also it's it's an extremely practical uh, uh, kind of set of teachings for evangelical leaders and somebody like Driscoll uh, makes this very clear you can see it in Jerry Fowell senior you can see it in in a number of these these really militant pastors today but if you can um, present kind of uh, this, this great threat that is, you know, right outside your door, even, you know, the church right down the road or Driscoll was known for being flanked with bodyguards when he preached, right, you know, because it was so dangerous and, and it was war. It was spiritual warfare, but it, the threat was very real. And what happens in time of war? Absolute loyalty is demanded. Anything, yes. anything right. short of that is is right. betrayal, treason, even. Um, absolute sacrifice is demanded. Right. And that's exactly Mm -hmm. how Driscoll operated. And this kind of um, language of threat and embattlement is really, really good to get people uh, to be loyal and to give a lot of money. And so it's just Mm -hmm. very effective. So I think that, you know, what you can see then is ordinary folks who are being told over and over again, it's so dangerous. They are out to get you. The case of the ex-Muslim, you know, total fraudulent ex-Muslim terrorists. That. Mm caused real fear in the hearts of evangelicals. It still does today, but it was entirely manufactured for the purposes of consolidating power.
0: So we've talked a little bit about this generally in evangelicalism and uh, and, and the militancy and the idea of an enemy and protection and those sorts of things. But the heart of your book is about masculinity and that, that dimension of evangelicalism. And, and, and underneath that is the, the whole structure of patriarchy, right? So, um, you know, having read um, Harari's book, uh, Species, uh, it, it's, it's interesting that he, he has theories, but says nobody really knows why patriarchy exists. Like, I mean, it's everywhere. It's not just in Christianity, it's not just in evangelicalism, it's not just like in the Christian Bible, it's everywhere, right? And there are a couple of theories about that. And your book, I mean, is obviously you can't start at creation. You've got to take a slice of time here, <laughs> right? But I wonder if you have wrestled with that question yourself. I mean, uh, it, it has has evangelicalism just sort of picked up on something that's that exists there, or is it is it part of the myth making that creates the system? I mean, how, how do you think about that—the presence mm-hmm. and persistence of patriarchy?
1: Yeah, so you know, as a historian, uh, we tend to emphasize—you know—we look at both continuity and change over time, um, but we're we're really emphasizing particularities, right? So the change over time is really critical to us. So we tend to shy away from uh, any phrases such as "throughout all of time." <laughs> <That's> <laughs> you know, <right. laughs> like we, I literally like scratch those out on all my my student papers all the time. I literally have a writing guide. Like, literally, nothing is true throughout all of time that is interesting enough to write about, right? This is just how historians think, right? So it's about the particular, particularity. So not just, oh, you're always going to find patriarchy, but then we zero in and say, what did patriarchy look like in this particular moment? And then how did it shift? Right. And so that's really, so I have to confess that in writing this book, I didn't entertain those big questions, but Mm -hmm. um, I did write a a book before this one uh, on the history of Christian feminism. And uh, it's it's called the New Gospel for Women, and it's about this remarkable Christian woman, Methodist uh, uh, social reformer in the late nineteenth, early twentieth century, named Catherine Bushnell. She was a global anti-trafficking activist, and then ended up to re uh, ended up retranslating and reinterpreting the scriptures. And so she dealt with this question all the time okay. because she was now I have another
0: book to read. Right, right. Okay. She, was, yes. she she
1: she had to confront the fact that I mean, it's going to sound familiar. Uh, But she she was an anti-trafficking activist and and kept coming up against respectable Christian men who were abusing women, who were Mm. covering up the abuse of women uh, in the United States and also globally. And um, and so she finally had to confront, you know, what is it about. Christian teachings that support this. And so she went to the scriptures and she went to Genesis three and she, she looked at, you know, throughout all the way through the book of revelation and in her reading, uh, patriarchy is a result of the fall. Right? Now I'm mm-hmm. a Calvinist, so right. we're really comfortable talking about sin and total depravity, yes. and 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 we're comfortable with you know that this is uh, and and it's a sin of pride and Gosh. of of greed and of and of of grasping at power, whereas the gospel of Christ is undoing all of that. It is it was countercultural. It goes against all of our instincts, right? And so redemption. Mm-hmm liberation is restoring this human flourishing and not grasping at power so i have to admit i have been influenced by that uh the the teachings of catherine bushnell and and i think that that's you know again as a calvinist a place that i can go
0: so last question maybe well maybe one more but um the you have a chapter on mulligans uh, for um, uh, Christian uh, leaders who have uh, fallen, uh, who have uh, uh, succumbed to temptation and uh, uh, the list is long. Right. Yes. Uh, and uh, so I, I guess what I'm interested in knowing from your point of view, do you have any sense? I mean, we're all about redemption in the Christian faith and uh It shouldn't surprise us that there are people who are eager to forgive uh, and that who uh, want to restore people who have great gifts and have done great things, even if there's a shadow side to it uh, altogether. I I guess, though, what I'm wondering is why is patriarchy in evangelicalism so durable in the face of all these failures of leaders who? continually show us that they can't live up to the standards that they proclaim. Uh, shouldn't it make us examine the roots of uh, the teaching itself? Uh, but it's incredibly durable, isn't it? Yeah,
1: Yeah. And, you know, we can talk about patriarchy as this kind of overarching term. But then what I do in the book is I get into very specific teachings of how does this manifest in terms of male sexuality, in terms of female sexuality, in terms of how we understand restraint, um, culpability. Mm -hmm. And, And, you know, honestly, what I found was really quite shocking. Uh, so when I first started looking into questions of evangelical masculinity, and I, and I mentioned I set it aside, and then I came back to it like a decade later. Um, but in, in that ensuing decade, I, I didn't stop paying attention. And that's when I started to notice that one after another after another of these men that I had been reading um, became implicated in scandal, uh, abuse of power, sexual abuse, either directly as perpetrators or often indirectly um, giving cover to their friends who are perpetrators. And, um, and so I knew right when I decided to, to write this book in 2016, I knew this chapter had to be in there and uh, it was incredibly difficult to write. And this is only a a fraction of the, the cases that I originally, I had to cut it down um, several times. It was just too long, but um, uh, you know, how does this persist? I it's this kind of twisted logic of um, protecting the witness or even the way that you kind of framed the question of, you know, restoration and men who had done really great things. And don't we want to like get them right back up there? I think we really have to um, have to have to think more critically about that framing. Even what kind of great things were they doing? And evangelicals have a real tendency to like separate this ideal Evangelicalism, oh, it's spreading, you know, this, this, uh, the salvation message, it's just pure evangelism. Then, and then there's some unfortunate things that happen, but that's not how things work, right? That in some ways, any goodness, is it does even more harm because it is wrapped up in this great evil and so the way it messes with victims is is just shocking and then the way honestly i've talked to so many survivors who even more traumatic for them than the actual abuse that they face is the response of their faith communities which is just almost Almost without exception, and you can point to a few good cases in recent years, um, mm-hmm. but almost without exception, ends up protecting the abuser and uh, blaming the victim. They're the ones kicked out, and this this pattern. This is you know, this is not one or two cases here. This no. is the norm. This so, is
0: this is church too. Uh, yeah, this is the, the Me Too movement in the church, and it's the story. Const- Consistently of how uh, yep. clergy abuse is handled. Yeah, and so
1: I just love uh, in the book I I turn to Rachel Den Hollander and yeah, and she has right. such powerful words and she speaks yes. to this instinct to give cover right um, yeah. to protect the witness of the man of the church and she says the gospel of Jesus Christ Jesus Christ does not need your protection right Good. just asks for your obedience and what does that look like telling the truth. And doing justice. That's all. And I think those are words that um, that we should live by. And certainly, I think that's the moral center, actually, of Jesus and John Wayne.
0: Right. So, that's a good place, I think, for us to, to stop at this point and say that at the end of the book, um, I know your publisher wanted you to give some hope to people, uh, and you were hesitant as a historian to do something beyond the scope of, uh, of your work. But you did say, you know, this entire development was not inevitable because history is not. And what once was done can be undone uh, or redone. And I I think uh, as a pastor and a faith leader, uh, what I want to say to you is first, thank you for your work. And I accept the challenge <laughs> of, of taking it from here in a sense that it, it's, uh, it, it's up to those of us who are doing this work uh, in churches and on the front lines to uh, have a different modeling of uh, our Christian theology. And uh, knowing what, where we, we have been is an important part in that. And so thank you so much for your good work.
1: Oh, thank you. Thank you so much.
0: Great. Well, we'll see you soon. I know you're coming to Dallas and to uh, our church, actually, in just a few weeks. And uh, we'll look forward to that on uh, April the 3rd. Uh, And thank you very much for your willingness to go everywhere uh, with this good news uh, (laughs) that uh, comes out of a period of bad news, too. So God bless you and your work.
1: Wonderful. Thank you so much. Uh,
0: God is created by Dr. George Mason, produced and directed by Jim White. Social media coordination by Cameron Vickery. Good God, Conversations with George Mason is the podcast devoted to bringing you ideas about God and faith and the common good. All material copyright 2022 by Faith Commons.